Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys today. Man, wake up nice and early in the morning with some rock and roll music. Come on. Good stuff. Man, I'm so happy to be in church today. I'm just excited. Uh, I just love you guys. Um, I've been a part of different churches, not many, but I think this is the best one I've ever been a part of. Yeah. And it has, uh, it has very little to do with, with my presence here. It has everything to do with your presence. Uh, yesterday, over 90 of us were over at Shasta Middle School. Raise your hand if you were there. Give a little cheer. And uh, we were able to serve and beautify the school. And just um, we've been doing that for seven years. Is Bruce here? Bruce, are you here this morning? Bruce, could you just stand up? And we can honor you for your hard work in coordinating. Thank you, Bruce. Not only is he eye candy, he's also, he's not just a pretty face. He's also got something going upstairs. Come on. But Bruce, we appreciate you. We love you. And uh, I know, stop. We'll move on. We'll move on. But thank you for organizing that and everybody that helped. Just really an awesome time of serving and and getting to to give back into our community and help the school. And it really does look different when we're done there. I mean, somebody comes along and fixes what I've done, you know, and makes it look nice. And uh, it was a great time together. Serving and my my thought, you know, as we were leaving, I, I told Bethany, and we say this a lot, you know, man, there's just so many great people at Joy Church. So many generous, warm, friendly, kind, I mean, incredible servants. You guys are awesome. So I love you guys. Uh, we're we're moving on in this series, Three Hots in a Cot. We're talking about the prison epistles. If you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks. Um, we're talking about these, uh, these letters that the Apostle Paul wrote while he was incarcerated for the sake of the gospel. He wrote four incredible letters that we call books of the Bible, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And there's a lot of overlap in these books and, and common themes. Uh, but we've been just in Ephesians, and it's been so rich looking at uh, the two kind of sides of this book, Ephesians, this letter. In the first half of the book in Ephesians, Paul is giving us the reality of the gospel, that we are free in Jesus, that we are forgiven in Jesus, and that we are part of the family of God in Christ. It's a powerful thing. And then out of that result or out of that reality of the gospel comes this new life that God is working in us and in in his family and his people, kind of like the house rules of what it means to be part of the household of faith. And so we've been examining this. And as we move forward today, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. We went through the first half of chapter 5 last week, and now we're going to jump in in verse 21 through 33. And this is going to give us a couple of passages over this week and next week. We're going to look at some uh, really interesting passages here in Ephesians that talk about Christian relationships. So one of the things we talk about is that when you want to kind of boil down the Christian faith to the essential things, how many of you like to hit the easy button on stuff, right? So this is going to give you the easy button on, hey, if you could explain the Christian faith, kind of what is it? What's the gist? Well, we break it down into two things. Um, And these are, again, maybe overly general, but I I don't think so. I think they kind of umbrella over most of what the Christian faith is. It is the Great Commission and the Great Commandments. So Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Well, what did he teach? What are his commandments? The Great Commandments are this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen? Amen. Man, give God your life. Give Give him everything. Love him with all you have. But number two... And Jesus says, this commandment is just as important that you love your neighbor as yourself. So the Christian faith is cruciform. It's shaped like a cross. We have a vertical relationship with God. and We have a horizontal relationship with each other. Okay. Now, how many of you know the way that you treat people? John, one of Jesus' disciples, one of his apostles, he says, if you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, 
you don't really love God, right? So we're not, able, we're not allowed to just say, well, I'm good with God, I have a good relationship with God, but what about the other people in your life, those that are part of your family, the household of faith, those that are part of your natural family, those that are at your workplace, those that are at your school, can you just hate those people and be a Christian? And the answer is no, because it's lacking authenticity. That's a hypocritical thing. It's like, man, this God that I'm saying I love, this God that I'm saying I serve, this God of love, this God of mercy and justice, like how can I live out of alignment with my fellow man and, and act like I'm in line with God? So we know that's not the case. So relationships are incredibly important in the life and in the living of a, of a Christian. When we say we're part of the household of faith and we're part of God's family, then how we relate to each other and the various relationships that we see in our life are vital. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, as the Apostle Paul is giving us this beautiful theological treatise of what the reality of the gospel is and now how we live it out in these next couple of passages, he begins to specify relationships that, that are common to us in life. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, he jumps in and he starts talking about marriage. Somebody say, uh-oh, because marriage is where the rubber meets the road. Marriage is the relationship where you are brought together covenantally. And I always find it fascinating because when I do weddings and we do this thing, this vow, we say, till death do us part, it sounds more like gladiator games than it does some romantic thing, right? You literally stand up here, hey, you wear the nicest dress you can find, I'll wear the nicest suit I can find, and we're going to fight to the death. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to love each other to the death. It's kind of uh, epic, right? Marriage is an incredibly important relationship, and it's really where the rubber meets the road in are we in alignment with God and how he is calling us to live or not. And we see the results of marriage, they go, it can go really, really well, or like what many people have experienced, it can go really, really badly. So this passage in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is speaking into the Christian relationship of marriage. And I love this passage because it goes against all of our culture today, whether you're coming from a feminist standpoint or a chauvinist or masculine standpoint, whatever side you're, you're going to want to come from this, this, this passage does not support your or my view. It gives us something entirely different, God's perspective. So let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 21, it says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Amen. Good night, everybody. Have a wonderful, <laughs> have a wonderful day. Oh, wait, there's, there's more. Thank you. There's some more. Okay. For husbands, this means love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Just real quick, Paul says, guys, your standard is Jesus. Okay, move on. ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one 
So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Father, I pray that today as we look into your word, we would be challenged and changed. We wouldn't read our opinions into this text, but we would allow you to speak to us through your word and change how we think, uh, change how we believe, and change how we behave as a result of that so that we can have these beautiful marriages that reflect the unity and the beauty of the church. Jesus, you are the most incredible husband. The church is the most incredible bride. Maybe we reflect that in our marriages and play our parts well in this dance of love and unity. Lord, I pray that you would change us, challenge us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this passage is, I would say, potentially controversial. Now, I don't actually think it is, but uh, potentially because it kind of comes against whatever side of the uh, gender fight between men and women or in marriage and who gets the one up and this kind of a thing. Um, but here's the reality. This passage does not present a feminist, nor does it pre- present a chauvinistic perspective. I would uh, propose to you today that whatever you might think this passage says, because when wives read it and go, well, submit to your husband, like, oh my gosh, oh yeah, I'm one of these kind of places, huh? We're going to like, might as well put women in burlap sacks and have them out there churning butter again. You know what I mean? You didn't give me enough credit for that joke. I thought it was excellent. (laughs) And then the guys are like, oh, the standard is Jesus. Like, oh, yeah, that's nice. You know, man. Okay, here's the reality. This this text does not support a feminist nor a chauvinistic reading. That's reading or what we call eisegeting, taking, taking our own cultural perspective, our 2023 Twitter, you know, or X or whatever it's called, Facebook, Instagram, influenced worldview, and then placing it over the text and now reading things into it that aren't there. Um, the feminists could get mad about this because it says wives need to submit. Chauvinists could get upset because it says submit to each other. So if you're like, man, it's just the wives need to submit. Well, it actually says you're both supposed to submit to each other. So how does that kind of work out? Now, here's the reality. To the culture, the original audience that this is written to, we're talking about this is being written in uh, the first century AD. Uh, This is not uh, a culture that looks anything like our culture today in terms of the gender roles and the way that marriages play out. So at this time in history, you don't have empowered women, you know, feminists hear me roar. It's not shown up on human, on planet earth yet. Okay. It has not come. Uh, this is a very patriarchal driven society. And there are many things we don't even have a chance of grasping in the ramifications of this world. We're not going to try to do that today. But here's the reality. The original audience of this passage, you know who actually would be more offended by what's being said here? Not the ladies, the men. Because the women are like, well, I already have to submit. I mean, I'm already part of this this marriage and it's just my social contract so I don't get put out in the street, right? My dad gave 19 really nice goats to get me into this relationship. (laughs) Okay, you guys with me here? Might not have been exactly like that, but that's generally kind of a, a way to look at this. So when Paul is actually giving this teaching to marriage, this is not retrograde or regressive to the audience that it's being given. It's actually rather very progressive for the time. Now, here's something you need to understand about the scripture. In various times when we look at a text and we go, well, in in our day and age, we don't necessarily treat marriages or, or things this way, or maybe we look at the Old Testament and we see how God's dealing with things. Sometimes in scripture, things are descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay? When God tells his people to go in and wipe out these nations, the Canaanites, people get really like, oh, well, he got better when he was Jesus. No, he's the same God. So how do you you 
fit that into your worldview. Well, you don't. You change your worldview to fit Scripture. But here's the reality. Many times what God does is is descriptive. In other words, he's speaking into a cultural moment rather than prescribing that this is how it is to be forever and ever and ever. Now, this passage is actually not like that. I believe this passage is actually prescriptive in that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving us instructions for how to live out our Christian faith and model Jesus in our marriages But here's the deal. When you look at this passage, be careful not to read modern interpretation or meaning or your understanding from a modern time into this this passage. I love these kinds of passages because when I read these and they sort of activate my 2023 mindset, you with me on this? What it does is it challenges me, and I hope it challenges you, to, to not read my opinions into the text, but to actually upgrade and start thinking like Jesus rather than using the Bible as a support for my agenda. This is a a big issue, right? You can find people on the political left that will go, well, you know, this is what real Christianity is about this, my political agenda. And then people on the political right, well, you know, real Christians would believe this. And the reality is both sides can use texts out of context as proof texts and go, see, my opinion is right because Jesus said so, and you have to do it. So na 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 And that's literally unchristlike. You know, that's not how Jesus is. That's not how he would act. So this passage, as we examine it, I, I think, and I believe there's a beautiful third way of looking at this. Again, we're not trying to lift up ladies and let's, let's do feminism, or and we're not trying to like lift up men at the expense of women or lift up women at the expense of men. There's actually a way here to read this that allows us to experience heaven at home and have great marriages that honor God where we look like Jesus, okay? Where both people are empowered. All right, you ready to jump in here? So understanding this passage, it starts with understanding the linguistic and the the context of what's actually happening here. When Paul says in verse 21, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, in the original language, this is actually... A, uh, a four-part thing that comes out of verse 18. So we read this last week. Verse 18, which precedes this teaching on marriage, is important because it's actually setting us up to understand the context of how we are to live our, out our marriage relationships uh, or hopefully just one marriage relationship. Hopefully it's not multiple, especially at the same time, you know, but even sequentially, it's actually better just to have the, the one if possible. Again, good jokes, underappreciated <laughs> talent. I think some of you are just too nervous to laugh at that. So he says in verse 18, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. This, this is not a throwaway word. This, this is an imperative. This is a command. If you read it in the original language, you study this out, this is actually like the, the hinge point of what's going to come next, saying, hey, you can, you can go into escapism, you can, you can dull your senses, you can use a depressive like wine, and you can be out of things or as a Christian, what you're supposed to do is in a continual sense, continue to be filled with the spirit of God because you're part of a new family, because of the reality of the gospel, there's a new way of life. And out of this comes four incredible beneficial results. He says, you're going to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves. Okay. That is a little bit hard for us to grasp, but this is a turn of phrase that these Christians would have understood to mean our public worship together, our time together. So when they would say, hey, we're singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, they're talking about church. And this is a, you can sum this up in the word fellowship. This is a really cool thing. When you're filled with the spirit, you're part of the family, you're in the fellowship. 
what we're doing today is we're not just here to hear a message and leave. We're actually experiencing this message, experiencing this worship, serving each other, loving each other. And Jesus is present in his church, in his body today. That's fellowship. So when you're filled with the spirit, you get fellowship. The next one is that you make music in your hearts to make music to the Lord in your hearts. Why does it say make music to the Lord in your hearts? Because some people need to keep that music that they make with their mouth in their hearts because it doesn't sound good when it comes out of their mouth. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what it is. No, he's saying make music in your hearts. This is a, the, the out of, some of you are like, what? No, okay. Out of, our, out of our life comes worship, that we love God. We make music in our hearts. So the second word is this word worship. A spirit-filled life leads to fellowship and it leads to worship. Then it says, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is gratitude. You have a realigned soul. Now you can enjoy the life that God has given you. Be thankful for everything that he's given to you. And then lastly, this fourth one comes out of being filled with the Spirit on a continual basis is he says, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The new rules of the family are not like what the Gentiles do, are not like what people outside of the kingdom of God do, not like what non-family members do. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna highlight this. But in the family of God, there is rather this idea that we submit to one another, that we say, you are more important than me. I will submit myself. I will surrender my agenda. I will surrender my pride. I'll even give up my right to be right about some things. And I'll allow another person even to make mistakes and I'm going to defer to my brothers and sisters in the household of faith. This is the command for all Christians because out of a spirit-filled life, we are in fellowship, we are in worship, right? We are in gratitude, and we're also in submission. It is the privilege of the Christian to emulate Christ in humility and submission to one another. And this is what, this is what differentiates us from the world. Because in the world, it says, well, who is stronger? Who has more money? Who has more power? But we know that just because somebody has all the gold and they get to make all the rules, that doesn't mean they make good rules. Come on, we live in a society where there's injustice. The rules are different if you got more money. Is this not accurate? Right? The rules are different sometimes based on the color of your skin. The rules are different sometimes in your gender. Sometimes things aren't just. We long for justice, okay? Okay. I don't want to get all off on that, but what differentiates us in God's family, in the kingdom of God, is that we, out of a spirit-filled life, we have this ability, we have this now commission, we have this calling to be in submission to one another. And this is the setup for when Paul begins to talk about marriage. And this is vitally important because throughout history, people would love to read meanings into this. And if the patriarchy is in charge or the matriarchy or it's chauvinism or misogynism or feminism or whatever, you can find what you want to emphasize here. But the context is that in the kingdom of God, living out a spirit-filled life, we live in deference to one another. And everything Paul says after starts right there. Does that make sense? So it's an interpretive key. Our new life in Christ is intended to permeate every relationship in our life. And marriage is like ground zero for this, the perfect example. We are called to have spirit-filled marriages. Christian marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ and the church. Does Christ domineer, take over, manipulate, you know, harp on the church? No. Does the church resist and fight and usurp Christ? No. We, Christ and the church work in their ideal sense in unity, right? Does this make sense? 
Christ doing his part, the church responding. And this is how marriage is meant to be. So let's jump in. I want to give you some thoughts today about this passage that we just read talking about marriage. Number one, asking the question, who's in charge, is the wrong question. This is where so much of the teaching that comes from well-meaning people out of Ephesians 5, it's like, you know, wives, you just need to submit to your man because, because his masculinity makes him a better leader. Have you ever met some men? <laughs> I mean, I am one. I'm not confused. I, I've always been one. I've never changed or been confused or anything like that. I, I'm a man. I'm just going to tell you right now, gender does not instantly make you a better leader, smarter, the best idea. If anything, in my experience, sometimes it might even do the opposite of that, right? I'm just having fun. This idea that has been taught is like, well, you know, yeah, it says it right in the Bible. You know, wives just have to submit. Well, what is your husband telling you to do? Well, he's trying to get me to do some weird, crazy sexual stuff. Well, I just got to submit. Do you guys realize this has been taught? Well, my husband says, you know, we got we to gotta move across the country because he has all these gambling debts and I'm just in submission. Yeah, that's not what Paul's saying here. That's not, what, that's not the heart of Jesus. Again, go back and ask, are we living out a spirit-filled marriage in a spirit of mutual deference to one another? What is the context of this teaching? So if we're saying, well, who's in charge? You know, if we come to a disagreement in our marriage, you know, Bethany, who gets the final say? Now, I will, in humility and transparency, tell you, there has actually been a time in our marriage when we were very young, first married, we were having a big fight, and I was like, you just need to submit. <laughs> oh, I guess you didn't like that? Okay, she didn't like it either. I didn't even like it, because I said it, and I was like, well, I don't really even believe that, okay? Because I'm just being an a-hole right now, okay? That's what's actually happening. <laughs> Guys, how many of you know, sometimes you're just being an a-hole? And I mean that in the sense you think I mean it in. You know? And ladies, how many know sometimes you're just being a, whatever you could be? I'm not even going to go. <laughs> hey, welcome to the human race. Like, we're not perfect, right? So this is not talking about a trump card in all scenarios, okay? And asking who's in charge is actually the wrong question. Because we need to look at this through the right lens. And I already talked about the spirit-filled lens that Paul establishes in Ephesians 5. Let me make it a little bit clearer. Because how many of you believe that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he pens these words, would agree with Jesus Christ about what marriage is supposed to look like? That he would agree with Jesus. Of course he would. Because Jesus is the Word made flesh. Like, Paul and Jesus don't disagree on stuff. So there's not like a, a dual theology here of submission. Listen to what Jesus did. When Jesus was working with his disciples, James and John and their mom come up to Jesus and they call shotgun. They're like, Jesus, when you go into your kingdom, could James and John sit at your right hand and your left? You remember this story? And Jesus is like, look, wrong question. And, he, he, and all the other disciples are really ticked off at James and John for trying to one up. You know what I mean? Peter was like, I will cut you, you know, <laughs> cut you, James. I will cut you, John. Jesus says to them in Matthew 20, but Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them, but among you it will be different. If you are looking at marriage or any Christian relationship through the lens of worldly authority, you are missing the biggest point of the whole thing. Because asking who's in charge, who gets the final say, who gets, to, who gets to put their will over another person is literally asking the wrong question. 
He says, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. And then he, he, he makes it so explicitly clear. For even the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, came to not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is the way of Jesus. Servant leadership, humility, deference to one another, laying down your rights. You got to think about this. Jesus is literally God. And his example to us is humility and deference to people that don't deserve it. Wives, if, if Jesus tells you to submit to your husband and you go, well, he doesn't deserve it. Yeah. Husbands, if Jesus tells you to lay your life down for your wife and she doesn't deserve it. Yeah. But are you modeling Jesus? Are we living out this new way? Or are we going, well, you know, who's in charge? Who gets the final say? What are the rules so I don't have to act like Jesus and pray about things and grow up? Just tell me the rules so I can win. It's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Jesus' way tells us that if we're grasping for the top, we're on our way down. If you're trying to take over and get on top, you're on your way down. That's whether it's at marriage or work or wherever. Servant leadership in the kingdom of God is the new standard of leadership. Jesus himself is the standard. Christian leadership is never about forcing your way over someone else. So here's the right question, okay? If the wrong question is who's in charge, the right question in Christian marriage and all Christian relationships is this. How do I model Jesus in my marriage? Because if you're asking how do I model Jesus and you're not saying who's in charge, you're going to be able to fulfill your God-given function in the spirit of mutuality, submission, deference, unity, humility, and it's a beautiful thing. Now remember in Ephesians 5.1, Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, imitate God in everything you do because you are his dear children. So we're told to imitate God and yet oftentimes in church, people have been taught, well, you know, you just, you just, it's the man. He's just, he's called to be the head. And so he just makes the decision. He wears the pants, you know, and this is like stupidity because guess what? My leadership and masculinity, intelligence, good ideas, God-given prophetic vision for my family is not intimidated by Bethany being an excellent leader alongside of me. Hello. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not giving up. My leadership, this idea that like, well, there's one leader and there's never another. Sometimes I'm like, babe, what do you think we should do? And she has an amazing idea. And guess what? I don't be like, oh, my headship. Uh, oh, no, I'm a eunuch. Ah! That never happens. Hello. There's something about humility that actually elevates my status as a, as a man of God and a leader Okay, I'm preaching good, maybe a little not good, but <laughs> praise God for grace. Number two, Christian marriage. Christian marriage is about submitting to Jesus together as one. Okay, and this is going to, I think, help you really grasp this. Husbands, you're not the big boss man. Wives, you're not in control it's not about who's in charge. We're both submitting to Jesus together, okay, because we're one. And this is the, the problem is if you're saying who's in charge, we're, we're differentiating ourselves and we're going, well, you're, you're half and I'm half and which one of us is 51%? It's like saying that my brain and my heart, well, who's in charge? I need them both to work at the same time together. I love my brain. It doesn't work that great all the time. I still love it. 
I love my heart. I want it to pump blood. And I'm not like, well, you know, sorry, brain, heart, it's heart time today. Because, you know, it's heart needs to, is in charge of the brain. That's not how it works when you're one. So the actual analogy and word picture here that Paul uses to describe marriage and that the Bible uses to describe marriage is that a man leaves his father and mother and he's joined with his wife and they become one. So in a unity, when, when, you're, when you're one and you're operating and working as one, how do you then have this concept or paradigm of who's in charge? It is illogical and it is unbiblical. So for husbands, when we talk about submitting to Jesus together as one, unchristlike leadership is in violation of your calling. So the scripture is clear. It says in a marriage, the husband is called to play this role of headship in the same way that Jesus is headship of the church. Now, people have done some intense theological wrangling to try to fit this into a feminist framework. People have done intense theological wrangling to try to fit this into a chauvinist framework, and it doesn't work either way. This word headship is kafala or kafale, and it's talking about, you know, like Jesus is the head of the church. But if you think about the way Jesus represents as the head of the church, he's not like, okay, I'm in charge and he's kicking people around and, you know, get me a beer. And, you know, he's not acting like a big jerk. He's laying his life down. So for a husband performing their function and, and living their role within this unity, if you're operating in unchristlike leadership, you're violating your calling, Jesus would not demean, Jesus would not domineer, Jesus would not force, Jesus would not manipulate. And so, and so should you not do those things as a husband. As a wife, any unchristlike behavior is also in violation of your calling. Jesus wouldn't control, undercut, misdirect, or manipulate, and nor should you. For husbands and wives, there are temptations that pull us to go, I'm not one, there's two of us, and I'm going to get the upper hand. This is literally why marriage is one of the greatest discipleship incubators ever created. Because God brings two flawed human beings, like Bethany and I, I've met us before, we're flawed human beings, both of us. Her less, but you know, actually we're probably equal. So... Even like maybe this week, I might even be like one up, you know, no, I'm teasing, I'm kidding. But Bethany and I, we are flawed humans and she sees my flaws. I see her flaws. Like we grate on each other. There's times when it's like she chooses to love me like Christ would love me. Sometimes I choose to love her like Christ would love her. And it's not because she deserves it and vice versa. It's not because I deserve it. Any married people in here know what I'm talking about. Sometimes your, your other half, sometimes part of your body is, is off on a tangent of sin or depression or discouragement or whatever. For me, I just call that Monday, you know, for me in our marriage. And you're choosing to love that person. It's an incredible discipleship incubator because within this, you get to choose to be filled with the spirit and walk in unity and love each other as Christ would love, would love that other person. So again, making it about who gets the final say or who's in charge or who's the boss is embracing a non-Christian view of this headship and leadership question. It is my joy, it is my privilege to act like Jesus in my marriage and lay down my life for Bethany, for my wife. It is Bethany's joy and her privilege to act like Jesus and submit to me as unto the Lord as the scripture says. Let's be clear about that though. Both parties are submitting to Jesus here, both laying down their selfishness and agenda. Nobody is getting a bigger share of the pie than the other person. Both are getting the whole pie because we're both one. Again, if your brain wins and your heart loses, you lose. If your heart wins and your brain loses, you lose. You with me? So the text is not describing, this is where we get off. This text is not describing 
a linear hierarchy of power. These words would tend to give us this idea. You got Jesus, you got a husband, and you got this wife. And as long as she's doing her part, everything's going to be fine. Well, no, it's not actually what it's describing. It's talking about a circle under Christ. A circle of mutual submission, a circle of love, playing different roles, operating in different ways. Men and women are not exactly the same. Have you noticed? All of us guys have noticed. Right? It's, it, we're not. We're not exactly the same. We have different functions, different roles in marriage, in other relationships, and in life. So it looks different for how we love, serve, submit. It looks different for each party, and that's okay. But if we're both seeking to model Jesus, then it works and it's beautiful. Again, remember, this is the key. We're submitting to Jesus together as one. In a husband and wife relationship, husbands, if you're taking this message and you're going, see, you, know, you submit to me, you're not, you're not getting it. You're missing it. You're stabbing your own body. Paul's trying to get you to realize if you act in an unchristlike way, you're hurting yourself. Wives, if you are coming against your husband, you're, you're hurting yourself, right? We're meant to work together. All right, number three, we'll finish with this. Marriage is an opportunity to experience heaven at home. Heaven at home. Paul says in verse 33, I love this. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. There's a really great teaching. We've done it with some people before, a marriage um, kind of course called Love and Respect. And it talks about just the differences in the gender for, for males and for females and, and how we sort of receive love. Um, and it's interesting. I don't know that it's always 100% descriptive of every marriage, but I think it, it tends to be a good way of looking at it, that men are looking for respect, women are looking for love. Now, again, I don't really like these kind of generalizations because I think they're actually unhelpful, but I believe that it is a good spirited attempt to, to grasp what Paul is saying here in this verse under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we're both giving the other person what they need in the relationship out of an act of love and service for them. So again, it's not ever asking like, am, am I in charge today? Like that's not the, the right question. If every Christian husband and wife would defer to each other in love and respect, their marriage will be lovely, enjoyable, peaceful, like incredible. The, the whole will be greater than the, the parts, okay? The goal of marriage is heaven at home. And here's what I mean by that when I say heaven at home. Is, it's asking this question, is the kingdom of heaven evident in my marriage? If Jesus were in this marriage, how would he treat my wife? If Jesus were in this marriage, how would he treat my husband? How would I model Jesus? Am I letting the kingdom of heaven permeate my communication, our time together, uh, our way that we raise kids together, our discussions about money? How we, how we, what we do for play, all this kind of stuff, is heaven showing up in my home? Is it evident in my marriage? That is the goal. And here's the awesome thing. When we, instead of going, well, I'm going to impose my cultural view on Scripture, but rather read the Scripture and say, okay, let me understand what God is saying to me, because ultimately then what happens is we get the result of a Christian marriage. I think so many people miss they're pursuing what they think is joyful and, and wonderful about marriage, but they're rejecting God's plan for marriage and God's picture of marriage, and so they never get the benefit. You know, it's kind of like somebody says, well, I've had a muffin before. Yeah, but you never had one of Bethany's homemade muffins with the blueberries from the glean. You know, like you never had one of those. It's a different thing 
than going down to Quickie Mart and buying a muffin there, you know, that's wrapped in plastic. So many people have had the gas station sushi version of marriage. And they're going, yeah, I tried that. It wasn't for me. And this is where you get people at weddings going, yeah, the old ball and chain and all kinds of stuff like this. Because they're in a striving relationship. How horrible is it to be locked in combat with the person you're meant to love and support and work together with, right? So when we adopt God's perspective, we actually realize heaven at home. Christian marriage is a beautiful thing. And I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine getting everything your heart craves out of marriage. Like everything your heart craves. Guys, everything your heart craves out of marriage. And just sit in that for a second. Ladies, everything your heart craves out of marriage. God is giving each of us a garden patch. And he's saying, you get to plant what you want to grow in this garden patch. And if we start planting for guys, you know, well, I'm in charge. We're not going to enjoy the fruit. Ladies, if we start planting, oh, I'm in charge. If we're striving against each other, no. If we say, look, it's our joy out of a spirit-filled life as a Christian to submit to one another, to defer to each other, and to operate according to this pattern of marriage in this picture, we're going to realize the beauty of Christian marriage. It's also an opportunity to revere and worship Jesus by living and loving him. But remember, it's impossible without the Holy Spirit. You can't be married in the Christian sense, nor can you be a Christian, nor can you be part of God's family apart from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because I don't produce the vitamin in my own natural self of loving Bethany the way that Christ loves the church. I need to get that from the Holy Spirit. She doesn't get the deference and the humility and the grace of Christ. Like we don't get what we need apart from the Holy Spirit. And so as Christians, because we're filled with the Spirit of God, we receive the benefit of living this life of submission, living this life of humility and deference to one another. It is most beautifully emulated in, the, in a Christian marriage between husband and wife. And we see heaven at home. It's a picture of Christ in the church. And when we live that out, we are an, a living, breathing billboard of the kingdom of God made manifest in a core human relationship. And it fulfills the longings and desires of our heart. It's a beautiful thing. Amen. So I want to do two things today. One, I want us to repent inside our own heart and mind for any view that is outside of what Jesus would do in a marriage. Because it's so easy to read what we want to read into how we get to operate in marriage. And I know for me, I'm challenged by this to go, am I modeling Jesus to Bethany? Because if I'm not living heaven at home, how am I going to see heaven come to earth in my ministry, in my, with my kids, at work, right? It has to start here. So Jesus, we repent as husbands for not modeling Jesus at home. And Lord, we repent as wives for not modeling Jesus at home. I pray, Lord, that here at Joy Church in our marriages, as we work uh, towards loving each other, as we work towards living the way you've called us to live and being filled with the Spirit, that we would have heaven at home. I pray that our marriages would reflect Christ and the church. I pray that would, we wouldn't be asking the question, who's in charge? We're asking the question, how do I mo model Jesus? How do I live like Jesus and love like Jesus in my marriage? And if we would do that, Lord, I believe we're going to see your grace, your blessing in our marriages. They're going to go the distance. We're not going to see divorces. We're not going to see uh, brokenness. We're not going to see unfaithfulness. We're going to see joyful, fulfilling, beautiful, long, healthy marriages in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you bow your head and close your eyes today? If you're here in this place and you say, Pastor Jake, I am not a follower of Jesus. 
Well, before being in a Christian marriage, before human relationships get better, you got to get your relationship right with God. What I love about our God is that he didn't just stay up on his high heavenly throne and look down and go, well, stinks to be you. We serve the God that invaded our story, came down into our mess. Jesus climbed down that ladder. He didn't, he didn't say, here's the ladder to climb to me. He said, I'm coming down to make you right with your father in heaven. And today you can put your faith and trust in him and choose to follow him as your Lord and Savior. And he's going to save you right in this moment. So if that's you, would you just raise your hand so I can see? Just lift it up so I can see. Awesome. Thank you. Anybody in this place today, I want to put my faith in Christ. We're going to pray this prayer together. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you and in you alone. I give you my life, all the good and all the bad. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for making me part of your family. In Jesus' name, amen.